0: This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey, everyone. You're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. Thanks for tuning in. In today's episode, I spoke with Dr. David Dickman, a neuroscientist at Baylor College of Medicine, The major focus of Dr. Dickman's research has been on understanding how our brains determine where we are in a physical sense, and how this information is used to navigate. Our bodies can use lots of different kinds of information to answer this question. Visual cues, smells, as well as internal cues. The majority of Dr. Dickman's research has focused on what's referred to as the vestibular system, A sensory system which helps coordinate balance and provides internal sensory information about the position of the body in space. However, he has recently been investigating a much more mysterious kind of sensation that is used by particular animals to help navigate, known as magnetoreception, which is the ability to detect magnetic fields such as the Earth's magnetic field. How do animals even sense this field in the first place, and how can this information be useful for navigation? During the course of the interview, we talked about how Dr. Dickman tries to answer these questions, about the importance of next door neighbors in shaping his career, and about sending monkeys into space during the fall of the Soviet Union. Yup. Hope you enjoy. What drew you into
1: what you study now? So in graduate school, um, I was at the University of Wyoming, and when I went to graduate school, you didn't get to pick. Um, you applied, and they, you got in, and once you got in, they assigned you to a laboratory. So I was assigned to um, work in taste, and a, David, a fellow named David Smith was my mentor. He subsequently passed away. Um, but he was a taste guru, and so I studied taste in durables, uh, and the mechanisms in the brain and in the periphery that uh, sense taste and how taste might be used as a pleasure or avoidance mechanism behaviorally, but it was primarily physiology. But I also got interested in um, rattlesnakes, and I recorded infrared pit viper um, sensors in the, in the infrared pits, the pit organs of um, prairie rattlesnakes, because the fellow next door to me was an ecologist. Mm -hmm. and he wanted to implant radio tags in his rattlesnakes and study their migration patterns as they came out of the burrows in the summer Mm -hmm. and then forage and then went back to the burrows in the
0: winter. Was it they were hard to find or he just wanted to know? He wanted to know what their
1: foraging patterns were like. Yeah. So I knew a little bit about surgery so I implanted his radio tags for him and studied the infrared pit detectors. But in order to do that, uh, I went to the NIH for the summers and worked uh, in Nobel Prize winners laboratory. His name was Carl Gadjasek, and he had a biophysicist who was also interested in infrared detection. And so we worked together in snakes, and it turns out the guy next door to his lab (laughs) was a vestibular guy. It's just the, the next door neighbor is just led you down. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so I just became fascinated. He told me point blank, we had a, we were having beers one day and he said, you know, the, the infrared pit organ is really, really fascinating and, and the Air Force was interested in it, they who funded it because they wanted to make better guidance smart bombs uh, for heat seeking sources. So uh, he said, you know, there's really no future in this um, for you. So if you want to get a career job, you need to do something else. And the vestibular system was really interesting, so he said, why don't you come and do a postdoc in my lab? And so I said, okay. So I went and did a postdoc in his lab, and it turned out that um, the vestibular was system was fascinating, and I was really interested in the space program. I always wanted to be an astronaut. And so as it has, he had a project coming up to work in the space program uh, to fly monkeys in orbit. And so I said, okay, that sounds really cool. And so I started working in his lab on the vestibular system, and one thing led to another,
0: and we got to fly
1: monkeys in orbit.
0: Really? Yeah. Oh, when did, when did that happen? That was 1989,
1: and I went to Moscow. for um, We did two flights over the course of three years. And in 1989 in Moscow was the fall of the Soviet Union. So when I went there, it was Soviet Union. And when I left in 1992, it was Russia Mm -hmm. and we were there during the entire social revolution so we were doing science at the same time that the soviet union was changing and there were protests on the streets and tanks going and i i have so many
0: stories about that we should just let's just do a whole nother episode (laughs) that's fascinating wow but we flew monkeys Um. in orbit yeah and so that the rest is (laughs) history (laughs) wow okay can we talk a little more about that that's there's i'm sure there's tons in there um yeah. Okay. So you went there specifically for this project.
1: They they were collaborating with us um, because of Skylab at the time. Um, okay. This is all before you guys' time. But is this a space station? It was the first space station, okay. and it was an international space station. It subsequently burned up and fell into Australia. But at the time, so so they were really interested, um, and still are. NASA still is um, in what happens to the vestibular system in space. As it turns out, um, 80% of all the astronauts get motion sick within the first 72 hours of being up in space, and they throw up. So they were interested in this. And, okay. um, so we, we put monkeys in orbit, and we recorded from the vestibular nerves and from regions in the cerebellum, which receive vestibular information, vestibular nuclei. We had multiple electrodes in the monkeys. And in the 80s, that was a big deal. So we had to develop whole new recording mechanisms for doing this. Um, So we did that, and um, we did two flights, and we got some really good behavioral data from eye movements with our collaborators, uh, who was really their project from Mount Sinai, a fellow named Bernie Cohen. Um, But they recorded the eye movements that are done from vestibular stimulation, uh, and we recorded the neurons that are involved. And we got um, a couple of small papers out of that. Um But we didn't get enough neurons because we found out that when the monkeys came back to gravity, they adapted back to Earth in 24 hours. So at the maximum was, you know, two days. So we had a very short window with rich to record before the cells basically recapitulated back to their normal response state. So we recorded like mad, but we only you got had to like
0: run after the wherever it landed, like
1: picked up the monkey, and then... <laughs> well, so that so we, we actually went to the, the launch site because I had to implant the electrodes uh, a week before to get our preliminary data, and then I had to be at the launch site. So I was recording from the monkeys two hours before we put them on the rocket wow. to get the baseline data. Mm-hmm. Um, and over there, it's very different from our space program. The whole rocket is assembled in one gigantic building. This is in Plisetsk, which is up by Archangel in the northern... Um, uh, in the Arctic Circle. And so it basically was night the whole time. So the, the rocket's in this big building, and it's on a train car and it's all put together and it's ready to go. And the only the last thing is the capsule and it they attach it at the last second. So I was putting my electrodes in the monkeys, the engineer tossed them into the capsule, locked their chairs down, they turn it inverted. They put it onto the rocket. The train goes out to the pad, which is about a mile away. We all hunker down inside this little concrete booth with a big window that you could see, right? The train has a catapult on it that lifts up the rocket like this. The train falls away, and the but- the engineer goes, okay, time, bam, presses the button, and the rocket goes. So it's not this big, drawn hundreds of people. There were like
0: five people. Is there even a countdown? No? <laughs> Yeah, there was, but it was like five, four, three, two, one, back. He's just like, ah, oh, whatever. It's over. ready.
1: <laughs> Essentially.
0: Yeah. Well, uh,
1: so th- there's mm-hmm. a little more timing than that, but not much. Yeah. And well, they had a launch window of plus minus one hour. So within that launch window, they were good.
0: And then you and then you recorded them again when they came back, as I you said. Yeah, you that one hour win, or twenty four hour time window. You had to pick them up. Did they? I'm assuming once they're in space, then they come back down. They land uh not they could probably land in a lot of places
1: that you know was 800 miles away yeah uh out in the plains because they bring them down on hard landings mm-hmm. so helicopters had to go pick them up and it took about six hours to get them back I see. so they'd are we'd already lost six hours mm-hmm. so then we just recorded for you know whatever we could straight yeah um for the next few days or so i'm sure that was a long day <laughs> it was a long day so the 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 first flight the the we recorded from them actually during the space flight, and the monkeys were trained. They had chairs that would move up and down and do some vestibular stuff, and the monkeys were trained to do tasks uh, in order to move their heads to follow targets and things like that so we could provide vestibular stimulation for them in space. And on the first flight, and we had, <laughs> this is old school, but this is what we had. Um, in those days, the bandwidth wasn't good enough to download our data continuously, so we had reel-to-reel tape. Uh, that was recording uh, every we could turn it on for an hour a day while they were up there and they were up there for three and a half weeks and then we got the tape back yeah and on the first flight one of the monkeys broke free got his arm free and shredded the tape so we lost our entire only bits and pieces of of tape were remaining oh man so we lost most all of the actual in-flight data this is doing space flights. So this is what it's like. Yeah. And when he broke free and we found out that that had happened, they brought the capsule down early. So the capsule came down about 100 miles off target. So we, that's when we lost our six hours for them to go get it and get it back.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> um, okay. Let's... Um, okay. So I, I... You know, I got totally <laughs> sidetracked. Let's, let's walk... No, no, no. Because that's just so fascinating. Um, so you... That got you into the field for a while, I'm assuming. That you said it was, it was right. as a postdoc in the NIH then? that uh, So, no, the, t- the guy had
1: moved at the time, and he was okay. actually at uh, the University of Texas uh, at Galveston. And then I got my first job at the end of that. Okay, yeah. So the next my- step, yeah, where'd you go after that? So, uh, yeah, that's kind of a sad story. So I went to the University of Mississippi, where they were building a brand new neuroscience program. And they hired uh, close to 50 people uh, in three years. So I was part of a big group uh, that was to come in to do neuroscience because they didn't have any. And about six years later, the dean um, died, I think, actually, from a heart attack or something. And he was the force of that whole effort. And once that happened, all the interest died away, so all of us left.
0: Okay. Yeah. And where'd you go from there? Washington University in St. Louis.
1: Okay. Um, and that was a really great place, and I was there for a long time, and then um, we left three years ago to go to Baylor College of Medicine. What are the things that your, your lab tries to address right now? Okay, so my lab is really work focusing on three things. Um, the first is the magnetic sense, um, mm-hmm. how it's encoded, what the receptor is like, and how the brain uses that information for homing and navigation purposes. So we're interested in the brain structures that are involved in the navigation circuit. Those would be areas of the hippocampus and regions around the hippocampus, like the entorhinal cortex, parahippocampal region, areas that feed signals to those regions, including um, the dorsal tegmental nucleus of the thalamus and regions of the brainstem and cerebellum. So we're forming recordings in each of those and trying to understand how the vestibular system sends motion information uh, to the navigation circuit, and then melds that information together with uh, magnetic sense information to form a, a map of space that birds or animals of any sort could use uh, for navigational purposes or homing purposes.
0: Could you tell what animals you, you you focus on studying, and then what kinds of navigational things that they have to do in the in the real world?
1: Sure, our animal model is pigeons, and we exclusively use pigeons. Okay. They don't navigate, really. They home, but they can home from very far distances. Uh, the largest recorded distance that I
0: know about is up to 2,000 kilometers.
1: Mm-hmm. So they routinely can go hundreds of miles.
0: Is there a difference between the type of animals you use? And I've, I've heard homing pigeons, is that a specific kind of a, a pigeon, or is this your common pigeon that you would see uh, in an urban environment or something like yeah, that? Yeah, most
1: of the common pigeons you see in urban environments are, in fact, homing pigeons. Okay. Uh, we use racing homers they're specifically bred to for the gaming industry and they you know there's a lot of people around who actually use this as a hobby uh, where they train birds to home to their loft as fast as possible and there's cash prizes involved and yeah. clubs associated with this and it turns out that in China it's extremely big money so a lot of people tease me that uh, we could we could take our lab over to China and, and be self-supported simply by figuring out how birds home faster
0: oh man, have you ever been contacted by these people before? no, but I gave a
1: talk <laughs> in Taiwan a year and a half ago and they wow. were just, oh, we need you nice <laughs> <laughs> so, so birds is usually for this, but um, I also have, uh, with my wife, who is my collaborator, uh, has been for many, many years, mm-hmm. and she's actually much more successful than I am. So <laughs> she's National Academy of Sciences and all that. Mm-hmm. But she and I together do several projects in, in non-human primates, specifically rhesus macaques. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have um, one project where we're looking at, in fact, head direction cells, which is one class of neurons in the thalamus. Involved in the navigation circuit, you may have heard of those. They signal the compass heading of an animal when it's moving around in its environment, and we found them now in monkeys. Uh, and so, okay.
0: so you guys were the, or you guys discovered that primates and stuff have cells that respond to then the direction of the head. That's right. The difference between pigeons and birds and then mammals. What sorts of things have you found similarities or differences between the two kinds of navigation systems? If one is using homing or one is using maybe local cues. Well don't have enough information to do a lot of that yet. We've just now found
1: the head direction cells in monkeys. We know they're in several different locations and that is consistent with the rodent literature. In birds we've only um, been recording in hippocampus and thalamus just this year and they do have head direction cells. They do have place cells which are those cells the next step up. So it's thought that head direction cells either feed the information to make place cells, or place cells feed the information to head, head direction cells, and that's a big controversy in the field. Nobody mm-hmm. really knows for sure. Yeah. And then there are the third class of neurons um, called grid cells, which is what the Mosers and O'Keefe just won the Nobel Prize for, both of those classes. Mm-hmm. So we know that the birds and the monkeys, we don't know about monkeys for grids, for place cells or grid cells
0: yet, but we know about head direction cells. So we know that it's pretty um, so all these classifications of cells seem to exist it's a it's a very fundamental seemingly component and these neurons then like have their they, they it's like a coding sequence and right is that that's the idea is that the kind of the yeah the that's the absolute memory.
1: unknown question yeah. and that's what everybody's going after is how in fact yeah. do these different cell types and there may be others yet undiscovered sure um go together to give us our sense of place and direction and that's you know, that's a cognitive function that you can't live without, and it, and it hits you hard if you lose it, and that's what happens early in Alzheimer's disease. The first thing to go is your spatial memory. Mm, okay. and That also happens when you have vestibular lesions, um, when for some reason or another you lose bilaterally your vestibular sensors. You also lose your spatial navigation, and it gets so bad that these people in advanced state um, they get up at night to go to the bathroom and they can't find their way in the dark. Mm-hmm. I mean, they literally can't. Yeah, we, we know that that's a problem and we know that it depends on these sources of information, but we don't know how.
0: For people that, have, are, that are starting to develop vestibular uh, deficits, what can we do for that now? Is there any treatment or any sort of uh, behavior therapy that can be done? Yeah, all of the above. So yeah. we have a very limited treatment
1: repertoire for vestibular disorders. We can treat... Some diseases that are associated with the vestibular system that people know about, but most of those are peripheral in the sense there's vestibular, uh, sorry, there are viruses that attack the vestibular system and there are treatments for that. There are cancers that uh, attach the nerve and there are treatments for that. But vestibular loss, like what happens in about 35% of the population after you're the age of 65, your vestibular system cells die there's nothing we can do. There's people that are working on regeneration um, but so far that's hit and miss. Nothing's been implemented to the point you can actually do that yet and if you lose centrally any of the signals there's virtually nothing. There are some exercises, vestibular exercises to sensitize you to the loss, to try to increase your sensitivity for what you still have, but it's really pretty rudimentary.
0: Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about uh, magnetosensation? Because it's, I guess, seemingly controversial. Can we can we talk maybe about the the history of the field of animals' ability to sense magne- magnetic field? And then what is the scope of the animal kingdom, maybe, that also like exhibit uh, magnetic sensory capabilities?
1: Right. So it really um, can be traced back to when we knew that the magnetic field of the Earth was something of um, a systematic variant, meaning that there were these parameters in the elevation of the field and the intensity of the field that could be used. Mm -hmm. And once that was known, then people realized that, oh, gosh, this could be a a source of navigation, because navigation has fascinated, animal navigation, has fascinated people back to Socrates. And And so no one knew how they did it, and there were all these theories then after World War II, and we actually were able to measure the Earth's magnetic field, then it, people started to realize, the behaviorists started to realize, that, oh, yeah, this is something that, that maybe could be used. So the first behavioral experiments
0: were really in the 60s. Uh, most all of them were in birds. Do you know the history of what people kind of imagined how these birds were doing it before the idea of a magnetic field came about? So, the, um, yes, uh, there are studies out there to show that many migratory species do, in fact, use
1: the stars, okay. particularly birds that fly at night. Um, those have been some really interesting studies where they've taken uh, planetariums and they rotate the stars inside a planetarium and the birds' flight behavior, mm-hmm. basically their orientation mm-hmm. inside the planetarium, changes with the stars. The stars <laughs> Uh, sun compass, uh, there are birds, it's known that birds can use the sun uh, as a mechanism to tell um, compass orientation north, south, east, or west. Uh, smell has been implicated also in orientation capability. Um, local smells mostly, not in, terms, not in terms of long distance, but on the other hand, there are people who claim that
0: birds can smell the forest. Was there an important finding that sort of said, this looks like that birds are able to sense the sort of magnetic field and they're using it to navigate? Yeah, the first one that really showed
1: it it, again, it was a behavioral study, but it, it manipulated in the laboratory the magnetic field. It was a group, um, the Wiltschkos, um, Rothitha and Wolfgang Wilchko at uh, Max Planck Institute in Fredericksburg, I believe it was at the time, but they subsequently moved to Frankfurt. But anyway, it doesn't matter. They, uh, in 1971, had a science paper where they manipulated the magnetic field with a bird pigeon on the inside, and they showed that the pigeon oriented uh, when it wanted to fly towards north. And then they turned the magnetic field so that north was what used to be south, and the pigeons oriented towards the south. So that was really the first behavioral experimental evidence in the laboratory that that, in fact, was the
0: case. Interesting. Okay, so then how do they do that in the real world? How do, how do birds then use the, the mm-hmm. magnetic field to travel like really long distances? Yeah, We don't know. The, the,
1: the magnetic field varies systematically across the Earth's surface. And the idea, no one knows, is that they form a map of the magnetic differences in intensity and in direction. And that map tells them not only the direction they're going, which we call heading direction, but also the direction that they need to go in order to achieve their target home location, whatever that is. Um, For pigeons, particularly, it's their home loft. And they need to know where they are relative to the home loft and which direction to fly to get to the home loft. And then they need to know that they have arrived at the home loft. So we think they use all the local cues, smell, sight, whatever, maybe magnetic, um, to tell them when they're local distance, close to home, just like we do. You know, We use our GPS or whatever in our car when we're driving across unknown territory in northern Wyoming, but once we hit home at Texas, we don't need the GPS anymore.
0: We know the local map, and we can drive home just by vision alone, not even thinking about it. So it's unknown exactly how this information might be integrated, but can you talk about what you your lab has been doing to try to answer that question? Sure. So we're, we're focused primarily
1: on these magnetic particles that we've isolated in the inner ear of birds. And the portion of the inner ear called the Lagina, which is a specific receptor type that fish, reptiles, and birds have, uh, but mammals don't. And these magnetic particles that we found there, we're trying to isolate where they are in the epithelium, which cells they're located in, and then how they might be associated. Are they within the cell itself? Are they attached to a, a, a ion channel that could um, depolarize or hyperpolarize the cell, which would activate uh, the neurons that innervate it? Uh, or is it some other mechanism altogether um, We don't know, um, but that's the study that we're we're performing now, is to isolate these receptor types, um, characterize the properties that are associated with the proteins where the receptor is housed, and then see if we can figure out the biophysics of how this might work. We have some ideas and some hypotheses. Um, The easiest is that it's a channel and that uh, somehow the magnetic uh, field pulls on the channel and opens it or closes it, depending upon its orientation to the to the field and the intensity of the field, which can depolarize or hypopolarize the cell. Um, that, If that is, in fact, the case, it opens a whole host of other questions as to how that channel would work and what the biophysics of the channel are and how much magnetic intensity you need to make the channel open or close, um, just like all the other sensory systems. Um, same, same types of questions would apply there, but
0: finding it is the big thing. Yeah. Is that, is there any channels that have been identified that are magnetic sensory? So there are, um, ma- the, the most well
1: studied of any magnetic orienting animal is magnetobacteria. And there are special bacteria that live in pond scum, basically, um, where they orient to the earth, to the magnetic field lines. And they have to live within a certain distance of the top or bottom of the pond. Because if they get too close to the water, they get too close to oxygen, and they'll die. If they get too deep, uh, it's toxic for them, so they'll die down there, too. So they have to live in this zone where there's just enough oxygen for them to live, but it's not anaerobic, right? So they they move up and down in this sphere along magnetic lines, and um, in the bacteria that have been isolated, the particles, they're like strings, like beads on a string. They're called magnetosomes. And they have the gene cluster that makes those. It's 30 genes together. But it's not a channel. It runs along the length along these centrioles that are inside the bacteria itself, almost the whole length of the bacteria. And so it just pulls them. Mm -hmm. And they basically align. the, The whole structure aligns passively.
0: So that's not thought to be, I mean, that could be a, a thing in the, in the uh, birds. No, we've looked um, at fine structure,
1: mostly at the light microscope level, but you can see it at the light microscope level in bacteria. So if it was similar in birds or, or any other animal, yeah. um, people would have seen it, um, and it's not there. So it's submicroscopic. It's got to be down at the subcellular level. So you could get at it with EM. Um, we haven't done that yet uh, to see if there's some kind of dense particle that's associated with the epithelium or a channel or something. Um, but those are, you know, intense studies and we just haven't done it. We're going at it to try to find the, um, a marker for the protein. Uh, and then, then it's easy to see with fluorescence, uh,
0: which is, you know, high throughput would be a, an easier way to get at what really is where it's located and what the mechanism is have we not taught is there something that we haven't talked about that you've kind of have been researching along that path yeah
1: so most all of that time most of my career is actually vestibular system function
0: not navigation circuit that's really only
1: recent the last five years or so and most of it was uh, sensory motor integration how vestibular controls uh, eye movement and gaze how vestibular system controls balance and coordination of spinal mechanisms Uh, how vestibular information gives rise to what we call spatial orientation, meaning how do you detect what direction you're moving through space, how how are the motion signals coupled with vision to give you your sense of motion. It's things like that you don't even think about that happen at the multisensory level, and it happens in the cerebellum and the brainstem. So how all that circuit goes together. And yeah, is that under? How do you? <laughs> where do we stand on this? Uh, do we, we know? We know, you know a lot about eye movements. Oh, okay, uh, we know a lot about gaze control. We know very little, actually, about posture and how the spinal mechanisms work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really complicated, and that that it it leads itself to really difficult experiments, particularly when you're trying to move animals around and you're trying to record from all these different places at the same time. It's People who study other systems have an advantage because their animals are stationary. They can fix them in one spot, and they can put electrodes all kinds of places. Mm-hmm. When you have to actually move your animals or have them moving around, that's changed a lot recently um, with the advent of tetrodes and different recording techniques. But in the old days, when we were using single-unit electrodes to record them from one cell at a time, you know that that's problematic. So we had to go to great lengths to solve... Um, special holders and things like that, special implant mechanisms, and so we invented a bunch of stuff. Now it's it's still useful, but um, now new technology has come along like it always does.
0: Yeah, what's the newest kind of technology that you've embraced or that you would um, or would even like to see? What, what, I guess what's the sort of like cutting edge and maybe even the next step of technology that uh, you and uh, other people in your field are embracing? Gosh, that's that's a loaded question. So the The
1: reality of what we have is multi-electrode recordings from multiple sites, and that's done with fine wires and tetrodes or these arrays now, and they come in various forms. If you're interested in cortex, you can use these uh, implantable arrays um, that have 100 electrodes or so on a chip and you just patch that into the cortex and you record from hundreds of neurons simultaneously. But it has limitations and you're still damaging the tissue that you're putting it in. Tetrodes are useful because you can put dozens of tetrodes in multiple locations if you wish and record from hundreds of cells simultaneously. And People are embracing that technology including us now. Um, But that has limitations also. You can only record from large cells not small cells. So most of the interneurons are, you, you never see because your electrodes are too big. Um, it's all invasive still. So if I had my dream, my dream would be to record from populations of cells all over the brain at simultaneously non-invasively. If you could figure out a way to do that, and people are trying with two-photon imaging. Um, there's a group uh, at our place. There's two, two groups that are doing that, and they can record from hundreds of neurons in the cortex, using multi-photon confocal microscopy in living animals but the head has to be fixed if the animal moves and you lose your signal bang it's all gone and it's all calcium imaging so you have to relate the calcium imaging that you see to the actual neuron firing so you have to do simultaneously patch clamping and calcium imaging which they've done these are horrific experiments right (laughs) it's not
0: it's not easy yeah
1: so you still have all these limits but the dream would be to record from any cell in the brain that you wish, and multiples of
0: them, non-invasively. If somebody could figure that out, and there was a way to do it, that's the dream. That's the dream. Yeah, that's where we need to move to, get getting larger populations instead of just singles or even channels. And then finally, yeah, the non-invasive component, because that's just been a, it's kind of just been par for the course. It's like a, it has to be done to get in there, but. Um,
1: yeah, it's, you know, so so the people in the imaging community hope that they'll come up with an imaging tool that lets them have the cellular millisecond
0: resolution at the imaging level, then non-invasive. If you could do that, then the only thing I've ever seen where was uh, I know that. Um in certain types of fish then when they're in the tadpole phase the developmentally they're still see-through and so you can kind of do imaging it's not a full brain but you can you know do imaging in a intact non-invasive it's still calcium imaging and stuff like that but you know in in unfortunately us and lots of other animals aren't see-through and so <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. In fact, yeah.
1: my, my former graduate student is working in a zebrafish lab, and that's what she does. Oh yeah. Okay. So and she teases me about that all the time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that she's lucky that she gets that. She gets to do that. Yeah. Invisible and yeah, we're we're trapped at this point. But <laughs> could you talk about what just uh, the things that you enjoy about being a neuroscientist and uh, the, the best part of your day and uh, I guess your career? What do what you enjoy about doing science?
1: Sure, so well, first of all, just as a neuroscientist, I mean, it, i I find it to be one of the great mysteries of all of biology left. I mean, there are many great mysteries, of course, so everybody's going to yell at me for saying this, but the neuro neuroscience is you know how the brain works is is it going to be solved in my lifetime? <laughs> no way so I wish I wish it would be. Would't that be fun? Mm-hmm. But I don't even think we're going to get at you know what what fundamental questions, what cognition is, I don't think we're going to get there because it's just hopelessly complicated. We don't even have the tools to answer that yet. So that's the fun. The fun is seeing these goals that are out there and you know trying to get at the building blocks to let the next generations come along to answer those really, really big questions. Yeah. You know, I wish would, I wish I could live long enough to do it, but yeah. it isn't gonna be me. <laughs> it isn't gonna be my generation. So if we can get some of the really simple questions that underlie some cognition, um, that would be cool. And, and the closest we're at, and, and we're doing this mostly in, in collab my, my wife's lab is really doing this big time. Um, were called neurocorrelates, where she has actually recorded behavior in monkeys um, at the same time they're making decisions. And she teaches them the decision to make. So they have to choose, for instance, uh, she moves them um, in certain directions and then asks them if they're moving left or right. And that's real easy if you're moving solid left or solid right, but it becomes really difficult if you're moving straight ahead. It's chance. So you can vary those parameters and you can ask the monkey, am I moving left or right, and vary at very small increments around straight ahead. And then you can record from neurons that you know are motion sensitive and at the same time the animal's making the choice. And then you get the neurons response when the animal says the right choice or the neurons response when the animal says the wrong choice. And this is as close as we can get to decision-making in neurons. It's called choice probabilities and there's a probability statistic measure that you can use um, to signal and that's as close as we we know in, the, in any field um, whether this is underlying what we call perception and the mathematics behind that are complicated and long but this is why the computational neuroscientists are in the field now uh, and they're having a heyday so it's really, really fun for them because they get these giant rich data sets and they're you know giving
0: us tools to figure out how the brain works, really. What's it like being a husband-wife science partnership and doing a, uh, working in maybe semi-related kinds of things? Uh, yeah, I guess, can you just tell me what that relationship is like?
1: Yeah, sure. So it, it's both fun, it's fascinating, it's enlightening because literally we 24-7 Are together on everything her office and my lab are right next to each other we're in each other's space I work in her systems she works in mine I do all of her surgery she does all my theory so (laughs) you know it's 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 great because we've grown up through the system together we met when I was a postdoc and she was a graduate student so we've seen the evolution of all of our own work but also the field as it's blossomed and grown Um, But then it's also a challenge because, you know, when you get tired of each other and you want space, then you have to forge off areas to do your own thing. Mm -hmm. But as scientists, our own thing is usually like reading papers or dealing with science or dealing with our kids. And since we do that together, too, (laughs) so we have our own hobbies. We do different things. Can you Um, talk about those? Yeah. um, My biggest, well, you have to limit life as you get more busy, but... So my two biggest hobbies are uh, sailing. I'm a big avid sailor, both long-distance offshore as well as just local stuff. So I have a boat down in um, Kima, which is located close to Houston, Mm -hmm. and get out in the water as much as I can. And then occasionally we do long-distance trips. A couple of years ago, another scientist couple, he and his wife had taken sabbatical. They live in San Francisco. They took their boat, 45-foot boat, from San Francisco all across the Society Islands into New Zealand. Took sixteen months and uh, traveled all around, and then came back.
0: And uh, need th- some good navigational system to uh, to do that task. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and
1: they needed some help um, sailing the big lakes because it was just the two of them. So I flew down to Hawaii, and uh, it was twenty three days to bring their boat back uh, to San Francisco. It was just the three of us, so that sure. was a big trip wow. 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 from Hawaii to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That was fun, and so th- that's. The whole nother talk is to tell you what you think about when you're three weeks out on the water. So that, that's fun. And, and then I like to play golf, so I try to get out on the course when I can. But it's becoming less and less. Yeah, But I hope that will become more and more. As you know, Right now we're all writing grants, so you have to give up on a lot of this stuff because the funding climate has really tightened up a lot. That's not to discourage young people from getting in because I think they still should. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an incredibly rewarding career. Um, there's nothing that I can think of, and I've talked to a lot of people. I have relatives and a lot of friends that do a lot of many different things. There's nothing uh, that gives you the freedom that science does. And it doesn't matter what your discipline is. You 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 do absolutely what you want to do. You decide every day what it is that you're going to be doing. Other than yeah, you have administrative stuff you have to do, and as you get older, there's more of that. That's true, and you have to write grants. So yeah, that's true, but. You know, and on any one day, if I want to record a neuron or I want to do anatomy, I can do anatomy. If I want to work with the cell biologist next door, I can do that. If I want to go down the hall and talk to the genetics guys about the genes that are involved and what it is that I'm studying, I can do that. And I'm always learning stuff. I mean, you just, you know, it's and now it's much easier to learn than it used to be. It used to be it was all books and you had to read and you had to go to the library. Now you just get it all online. And you can talk to so many people. You can converse in so many ways, so fast. So the the knowledge explosion that I've seen in my lifetime is just great. So it makes it more and more and more exciting,
0: in my opinion. Well, thank you for the encouraging uh, thing. There are a lot of people out there that will, will be that the funding climate obviously is like is a is a thing that uh, people take into account. But um, yeah, do you what what kinds of uh, traits do you think? Uh, Young people need or like is a uh, uh, would would make a good scientist.
1: Well, so for sure you have to be really curious. Uh, That's the first thing. It's really difficult to do good science if you just want it as a job. You you know, if it if it if it's just a nine to five for you, you you're not going to have the heart that it takes. You know, you got to have that. Curiosity edge to really want to know something and really want to answer a question, and then it just—it's a drive that comes from within inside you. If if, if that—if your heart is in it, then then you can do it. If your heart's not in it, you shouldn't do it. You can still be a scientist, but you can work for a company or you know some other application like that where. Um, you're not as required to perform on, from your own creativity, right? So the the, the and that venue is perfectly fine. I have a lot of friends who work in industry and they love it, and that's great. Uh, and they can forget it when they go home for the day, for the most part. Not always, um, but but for the most part, and uh, and that's great for them. So, but if you want to do academics, then you really got to have the the heart for it, and with that comes your your perseverance. Because if you have the heart for it, you'll just go at whatever failures happen, and there will be a lot. Um, and if, you know, you can always turn to another question, but you'll hit your head against the wall a lot of times um, before the,
0: the success comes in, right? Is there anything else you want to add or talk about?
1: I, yeah, there is actually. So this is something we're trying to get our students to do. I, I think that we as scientists need to be much more socially active than we are. And I'm I'm doing this because I'm teaching at the undergraduate level since i'm the neuroscience program director at rice as well as my stuff over at baylor and i really want these young people to understand what it is that i'm specifically talking to them about neuroscience but what it is that science does for them on an everyday basis and they're really really simple things like the first first day of class i tell everyone to turn off their cell phone right and i get these looks like well why would you tell me to turn off my cell phone? And I said, well, because I don't want you to be distracted by any of this stuff. I don't want you texting. I don't want you doing any of this kind of thing. I want you to just, this is the only day I'm going to ask you to do this. But I want you to get the social interaction that a professor has with his students, right? And I want you to ask me tons of questions. And I'm not going to lecture to you today. I'm just going to talk to you about what science is and what is of interest to you right? And how you need to make that more socially active, because I want you to go home and tell your legislatures and your parents and anybody that you can think of about what it is that is driving you to science and why it's important. And when you start to think that way, then you'll be able to pass on those kinds of insights to people who really don't know. The average person on the street doesn't really know what you do. And probably your parents don't even know what you do. So unless they're scientists. Right, And you need to make them understand so that they can make society aware of how
0: important this really, really is to our future. Right? Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Yeah, take care. Thanks. So okay. Thank you. Awesome.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.